Today on the show, we'll be using subliminal arousal techniques on you, dear listener. <laughs> if the arousal lasts more than four hours, please call a doctor. <laughs> Don't forget to tell the doctor about Gam Jabbar, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Convert them while you're there. Convert- yeah, you know. <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name is Abu. Mm. And today on the show, ooh, we're talking Vladimir Oh, Harkonnen. Putin? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Vladimir Putin. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. <laughs> that would be a, too hard of a geopolitical pivot for this podcast, I think. On today's episode, world politics. Okay, let's... <laughs> no, we're talking about the head of House Harkonnen. Yes. And basically, the big bad of Frank Herbert's first installment in the Dune franchise. And... Today's episode comes in part thanks to a listener suggestion. So, shouts out to Jason Podsednik. Yay, Jason. <laughs> Sorry, Jason. Podsednik. Pods. Jason. <laughs> thanks, Jason. Thanks for the recommendation. Thank you indeed, Jason. Now, before we get into it, let's quickly breeze through some housekeeping. Indeed. So that we can talk about our barony boy. <laughs> barony boy. When it comes to spoilers for today's episode, we will be discussing details up through the first half of Dune. Mm. So, in other words, if you have only seen Denny Villeneuve's adaptation, which covers roughly the first half of the book, then you are safe to listen to today's episode. We do plan to do another part two Baron episode that goes more in depth and covers the rest of his life in a spoiler-heavy fashion. So stay tuned for that as well. Indeed. Now the best way to support us is to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. You'll have access to some cool things. Ad-free episodes, bloopers, clips, spicy jokes that there might be some today. (laughs) And of course, special shout out today to our Quisats Hatterack level patron, Case Aiken. Case Aiken, if you're older giant brother was trying to kill you i would 100 percent poison needle him uh, (laughs) to save your life no hesitation indeed i got you gotta watch out (laughs) for those older siblings dangerous another great way to support this show is to check out our merchandise over at Mm gomjabarshop.com we got stickers we got cups and so much more so go check it out and grab yourself some dune swag indeed gomjabarshop.com and we love to hear from you, so send us an email at gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Whether you have questions, comments, or other episode ideas, let us know. Hit us up. We like to hear from you. We do indeed. You could be the next Jason Podsednik. Podsednik. <laughs> we could butcher your name live on Gamjabar. <laughs> well, let's talk about today's episode. Yes. We got to touch on canon. <sighs> Always. Hate to do this, but we have to. I know. I know. Especially when it comes to Baron Harkonnen, it's worth just reiterating. Yeah. So once again, just to make it clear, we consider Frank's words as the guiding star of Dune canonicity. Right. He's our primary canon. 
Nothing trumps Frank. Yep. Secondary, we consider the Dune Encyclopedia to be the next level down of canon, which, as we've discussed on the podcast before, Frank personally endorsed and was a fan of and expands on much of Frank's work without contradicting too much of it. Right. Finally, at the third level, we consider Brian's prequel series as the next drop down of canonicity. Right. We have him down in the third spot in our canon rankings just because Brian and Kevin J. Anderson have written a lot of things that straight up contradict Frank's. And if we consider Frank's word law, then it's tough to also consider Brian's canon as well. Right. And if you are familiar with Brian's works and how he has treated the Baron, for example, in Dune House of Trades, a comic book series that we have covered right. on this very show, then you may notice that what we covered today will be different than what Brian and Kevin J. Anderson have written about Baron in their books. But again, we're focusing on what we know from Frank and the encyclopedia, our two primary sources. Yeah, we really have to at some point just do an episode, like a canonicity episode, and really <laughs> yeah, <laughs> talk about all of it. If you out there in listener land want to hear that conversation, let us know. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, regardless of who's writing the book, you know, Frank's books, the encyclopedia, uh, Brian, one of the things they all agree on is that Baron Harkonnen is <laughs> one of the most ruthless fellows out in the universe. Yeah. So we can agree on that, <laughs> at least, right? Right. He's a bad guy. That's a good baseline to agree on, I think. <laughs> Some commonality we can work from, you know? Yeah. If you have to pick sides, <laughs> I think most of us should pick the side that's not Baron. Well, with housekeeping out of the way, we're going to take a quick break. But stick around. It's the whole rest of the episode. <laughs> It'd be absurd to stop. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, folks. Mm. Let's dive into the life of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. And to start off, a brief refresher in case you have forgotten who this bad, bad boy is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Baron Harkonnen is, of course, the primary villain in Frank's first book. Right. And we wanted to talk about him in today's episode and, of course, in a spoiler fashion in a part two, because he deserves some close examination, especially when you take into consideration what the encyclopedia tells us about his life. It offers a much more extensive look at the Baron outside the pages of Dune as we know him in the story, and it puts a lot of that story into context. Yeah, I was going to say, on first reading Dune, I thought of the Baron as almost a caricature. Like, he's so yeah. similar to those, like, you know, popcorn sci-fi villains in, in a lot of ways. He he does the evil speeches. He doesn't make sure the hero's <laughs> dead. Like, he, I don't know, he falls into some of those tropes. But it really wasn't until you and I started this podcast and we really had some deep conversations about his plans and his kind of how meticulous he is and, and all of the bases that he makes sure are covered 
within Frank's books, yeah, he's way more subtle than I expected. And really, it's a it's a disservice to Frank's writing to to think of him as this like easy to boil down character, right? Like obviously he's the antagonist. Clearly, that's how he functions. But he's really quite a subtle character in in some ways, and and brilliant, no doubt, very compelling, definitely. And a big theme that's going to come up time and time again yeah. in our conversation today is how the Baron is actually kind of emblematic of the Imperium itself. Yes. Or at least how the politics of the Imperium works within the Landstrad, for the great houses, for the minor houses. Yeah, yeah. He is a cunning, ruthless, and like you've said, subtle person. Yeah. And that is almost the only kind of person that can succeed within this political structure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like the one wheel that works in this universe. Someone right. invented this wheel and was like, fuck, I guess we should all be cunning, merciless, and ruthless. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a, a lot of the actions he even takes throughout his early life, as we'll discuss on the podcast today, but also within the story of Dune itself, are pretty encouraged by <laughs> this system that he operates within. Yeah. The Landsrod, the Imperium, the Great Houses, House Carino as the Emperor. All of these systems are there to protect the people that are in power and to protect people like Baron Harkonnen. And after today's conversation, the hope is that like you, the listener, will begin to see how someone like the Baron can succeed in this universe because the way he is ruthless and cunning and scheming and resourceful is actually rewarded within this Imperium. Right. And it's really interesting to think of it through that lens. Also, I found myself really appreciating how novel someone like Leto Atreides is. Yeah. Right? Like, un better understanding the Baron through writing this script and through our conversation today really gave me a new appreciation for House Atreides and how dangerous House Atreides could be to the status quo, which is like the whole reason Dune happens. Like, it's the whole reason Shaddam supported Baron's, you know, plan to eliminate House Atreides is because House Atreides is challenging the status quo, which is a huge central theme in Dune. So, mm -hmm. yeah, today's episode is all about Baron, but in so many ways, it's about Baron as a representation for the status quo and the sort of person that would emerge from these violent systems. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And look, I realize it kind of sounds like we're showering the Baron with praise, but yeah. to be super, super <laughs> clear, yeah. we are not here to defend the Baron on this episode, right? No, no. He commits vile acts and he is a vile person. Right. And he has this obsession and desire for power. Right, right. And when we meet him, we know from the story that he has a sexual preference for young, seemingly underage slave boys. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and an apparent disregard for very important things like consent. Yeah. <laughs> it's awful. He's a terrible human. Yeah. Terrible human being. And that we wanted to say that sort of upfront at the start of the episode, because we're going to be talking a lot about Baron today, but in no way are we defending the person he is or the character he is or what he represents he is at the end of the day a horrible human being <laughs> well let's talk about him at the beginning of the day <laughs> when he was yeah uh probably still not 
great. Yeah. But certainly a lot better than he ended up. Right. A potentially less horrible and shorter, less formed human being, probably. Y- yeah. Like, I don't know, a kind of a proto-adult. Like an er- <laughs> like a, a beta build of, a, of an adult, like a yeah. final little- something. Oh, child. That's the word we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> such a stupid bit let's talk about Baron Harkonnen as a kid but before we can you have to understand the house he's born into and the reputation they already had right and the Dune Encyclopedia makes three points in succession about House Harkonnen's uh, reputation first the house had a history of quote ruthless self-aggrandizement which of course <laughs> sets the stage for young Vladimir as he very comfortably fit into that pattern. Yeah. And second, this isn't particularly uncommon in the Imperium. Like we're saying in the uh, in the overview, if anything, this is the only guaranteed way to remain in power. Or, to quote the Dune Encyclopedia, and this is wild to me, quote, The Padishah feudal structure was stable only insofar as there existed a balance of power among ambitiously antagonistic forces. Constant distrust and the willingness to resort to any means remained the price of security. (laughs) End quote. Oh my God. That's insane. Insane. That really says it better than than we could ever. Yeah. It's the price of security is willingness to resort to any means that's just nuts right that's tough if if that's your corporate culture something is fucked at your company (laughs) hey welcome to your new job (laughs) around these parts i don't know constant distrust and the willingness (laughs) to resort to any means uh also there's a vending machine so if you want skittles like that's where you get them (laughs) anyway all of that is to say a lot of what baron would turn out to be was already pretty much decided in the kind of power structures of the Imperium. Right. So really, if anything, it's like he didn't choose to rebel against it. He kind of just went with it. Yeah, totally. Well, let's actually talk about little baby Baron. <laughs> yes. Vladimir Harkonnen was born the third son to Sirdar Baron Gunseng Harkonnen. Right. And Baroness Muertana. <laughs> in the year 10,110 AG. Yes. And boy, oh boy, <laughs> there's a lot to say about the family. <laughs> Let, let's briefly touch on these characters. Yeah, yeah. First up, we have his parents. There's Baron Gunseng, who was politically savvy, and you're going to hear this word a lot today, folks, <laughs> ruthless. Yeah. He was very ambitious about House Harkonnen's potential for greatness, and He actually has an entry in the Dune Encyclopedia. We could get sidetracked and really talk about Baron Gunsang. He's a fascinating character. But instead, we'll move on. Keep an ear out, though. We are going to discuss him in a future Spice Morsels episode. So stay tuned for that. And TLDR, by the way, he he strikes me as like the most reasonable human that we're going to talk about in the whole episode. (laughs) (laughs) Like the Mentat's not bad either. But Baron Gunsang seems to be just like an unremarkable guy, not marked by any crazy, twisted quality that I could see. Yeah. Of course, it takes two to tango, and Baron Gunsing's wife, Baroness Moritana, had, quote, the disposition of a scorpion, end quote, (laughs) according to the encyclopedia. Incredible. Yeah. She was originally from the then-powerful house Cerebella, And she, of course, had her own ambitions and aspirations for control of 
House Harkonnen. Right. She's out here politicking just as much as anyone else. Right. Yeah. When it comes to their children, unfortunately, the two lost their first child in infancy. Sure. And then they had Vladimir's older brother who, well, we should talk about this guy. I know we're trying not to get sidetracked, yeah. but a little sidetrack is appropriate here, I think. We got to talk about it. A little sidetrack <laughs> is a treat. Yeah, let's let's uh, treat ourselves. Let's talk about, so Vladimir's older brother is Araskin Harkonnen, and he was born five years before baby Vlad would be born. And he seems to be uh, something. He's quite a bit. <laughs> so first up, he grew to be two meters tall, which is about six seven. He's a big wow. boy. Wow. Big physical presence. And apparently weighed close to uh, 110 kilograms, which is 250 pounds. So just like a big, sturdy guy. Right. Right. Linebacker. Yeah. Linebacker. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, he is described as club-footed and simple-minded. And uh, there are multiple mentions of these qualities. So we have a sense maybe of how severe they were. Mm -hmm. Personality-wise, quote, Araskin was noted for his ferocity of temperament and devotion to his mother, end quote. Okay. So far in my notes, I have linebacker <laughs> and mama's boy. Got with it. With terrible temper, with a huge <laughs> temper indeed. <laughs> now, he was obsessed with this idea that if he hadn't been born club-footed, that he'd be basically this, like, unstoppable king of the universe sort of thing. Oh, okay. And his mother, like, leaned into that, where Tana was like, yeah, yes, you'd be a god. Probably a bit too much is the point. <laughs> she also this time was, quote, poisoning his mind against his father, end quote. Mm. And we start to see her ambitions for House Harkonnen you know, take control of one of the heirs, the oldest son. Seems like a very solid way. I also can't help but think that this is how, like, imperial politics exists within the households as well, you know? Very unfortunate that they can't, like, trust each other and love each other. And we'll come back to them in a minute. But that's basically what you need to know about Araskin so far. Linebacker, club-footed, big, sturdy dude very bad temper and being actively <laughs> turned against his father by his mother who uh perhaps supported him in the wrong way <laughs> yeah ah what a family what a family life yeah don't forget about those two we're going to come back to them later indeed let's return to vladimir himself yes the dune encyclopedia tells us that in the first 20 years of his life he developed into a strikingly charismatic young man, and he actually possessed a number of incredible qualities. Yeah. His father loved him, adored him, denied him nothing. Yeah. Quote, he received training in the arts, martial, musical, and political from the best tutors his father could afford. End quote. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Gunsing. Love yeah. to see a positive parent-child relationship. I feel like we talk about so few of them in the Dune universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So clearly Vladimir, for the first 20 years of his life, lacked for nothing. Right. And in fact, excelled at many of these things that he was trained in. Right. Apparently he was super smart, super curious, 
and very capable. His tutors were like, this guy's good. Yeah. A's all around. Report <laughs> cards, pretty good. Right. He also already, at an early age, had some of that characteristic stockiness. Like, he is big. Right, right. And this seems to be a theme. His brother is an, an enormous linebacker. So he's kind of a big guy, too. <laughs> right. He is described as all around, like, pretty well put together and quite handsome and charming as well. Right. So not sort of the evil monstrosity that we meet in the book itself. Right. At this point in his yeah. life, he's everything you want on a Tinder profile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet he was over 6'1". I don't, they don't tell us how tall he is, but like that's the, right? That's the. Right. Right. The cutoff is, you know, six feet. I think he, he easily surpasses that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, get him while he's hot. <laughs> Literally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, incredibly, there's one more amazing quality that he can add to that Tinder profile. Yeah. Because the encyclopedia tells us. That Baron Harkonnen can sing, folks. Uh, I love this so much. <laughs> Quote, his baritone singing voice was notable for its strength, range, and suppleness. End quote. So <laughs> supple. I love it. Get him on the voice. Get him on the voice. Imperium's Got Talent, season 12. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Vladimir. Sing us when a song. Stefani will fall head over heels <laughs> for this charismatic young man. He's charming. <laughs> <laughs> Gwen, I, I wouldn't hold it against Gwen Stefani at all if she fell into his charms, because there's actually in the Dune Encyclopedia this description of him from a poet, and the name is Reeve Perrin Sill, who is effusive. This poet fucking loved Baron Harkonnen. Uh, before he was barren, of course. Here it is in full. This is incredible to me. Quote, And what a prodigy he was, handsome and penetrating with full lips and hearty features. At 18, he was already a commanding presence, born to rule. And when he sang, even the cynical courtiers Gunsing had inherited produced crocodile tears of rapture. <laughs> Perhaps... Only hindsight enables me to think I sensed something evil behind the strong, manly appearance, especially during his most charming moments. Perhaps it was his voracious eyes, missing nothing, consuming you as they looked. But to witness his quality in fencing matches, Chope's tournaments, and musical performances was simply to be impressed with the man himself. Even then he was a commander of Harko's Praetorians and privy to Gunsing's deepest counsels, which excluded his mother and older brother. It was obvious he was being groomed for the barony. And how else could it be? End quote. Wow. What a review. Yeah. Golly. Damn. Brought to tears by his singing. Also, <laughs> I, I just want to point out that made both of us chuckle. Incredible. Imagine the baron singing something so beautiful it makes you tear up. Yeah. And he's like good at fencing. And winning at Dune's version of, like, chess tournaments. What can't he do? What can't he do? His fucking hinge profile's out of control. <laughs> and he's, like, bringing the house down at karaoke night. It's wild. What a what a different side to this character, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, older siblings might have uh, taken note. 
younger sibling getting something his older sibling is denied access to counsel and like an important position in his dad's job. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, no older sibling has ever been bothered <laughs> by something <laughs> the younger sibling has gotten. Good thing Araskin's so even in temperament and chill and yeah, yeah, intellectual, intellectual, really in his feelings. Yeah, really in touch with his heart. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing could go wrong. Right. Yeah. No. We're we're headed towards disaster, folks. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Gunsing clearly had a preference for his younger son. Right. And there were two major consequences for this favoritism. Right. Yeah. First is actually kind of sweet. Vladimir loved Gensing just as much as Gensing loved him. Yeah. A rare, beautiful, heartfelt parent-child relationship in the Dune universe. Yeah. Gensing and Vlad genuinely cared for and loved each other. Secondly, as a result, Gensing sort of ignored Araskin, his older son. And that meant that Araskin ended up spending a lot of time with his mother, Mortana, who we have established is already turning her son against the father. So we're seeing a very clear divide down the middle in this family. Right, right. Also, bonus third consequence, <laughs> Araskin <laughs> killed Gunsing and tried to kill Vladimir too. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Oops. <laughs> Did I mention disaster earlier? Because we're here. <laughs> Gunsing. The assassination came from within the house. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Here's how it breaks down. In the year 10,130 AG, so Vladimir's 20 years old at this point, House Harkonnen had a state banquet. <laughs> God. Extra embarrassing it happened during a party. Right. And here's how the evening played out. First... Araskin murdered Gunsing. <laughs> he <Yikes>. just <laughs> went for it. And uh, of course, my thought is like, hopefully they got to dessert at least. Like, uh, yeah, geez. hopefully they got through the meal, but who knows? <laughs> then he tried his very hardest to kill Vladimir. I'm sure he was <laughs> calm and collected the whole time. No, he was probably raging against this brother who had gotten everything <laughs> he was denied. And he almost succeeded. He almost succeeded in killing Vladimir. Yeah. But the house mentat, Chardin Cleese, killed him with a poison needle in the neck. Amazing. Through fear. <laughs> Take <laughs> note. This is how you protect people. <laughs> what a good mentat. He's a computer, but he'll also kill people for you. Ah, Chardin. Chardin Cleese. Hell yeah. Shouts. Shouts to Chardin. You're a, you're a real one. Now, Vladimir at age 20, with his father and older brother dead, had a lot to think about, had a lot on his mind. Right. And that very night, he made a choice. He signed up for therapy? Uh, uh, almost. Similar to that. Okay. Therapy is a good suggestion. Yeah. I think if we could go back in time, the way back machine, therapy would have been good. Okay. No, he, uh, he went a different route, a slightly different route. He decided, you know what? I'm 20. I'm old enough to be baron of a great house. Right. Killed his mom. Oh, <laughs> he, no. I know. It's brutal. <laughs> I mean, shit. We, we only know of her as like a conniving, scheming scorpion of a woman. But still, he strangled his mother to death that night. Wow. <laughs> it's an eventful night for House Harkonnen. I mean, to summarize, in this single evening, Vladimir went from doted upon second son of Baron Gunsing to literally the Baron of House Harkonnen 
And all it took was a bit of <laughs> manual labor matricide. Right. Insane. Wow. What a party. What a party that was. What a party. I, for one, am never going back to another Harkonnen state banquet. Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Seriously, set a reminder that it was so eventful. <laughs> going to remember to bring popcorn next time. It was wild. Did you see that computer kill a man? <laughs> <laughs> way way better than Thufir. Yeah. Jeez. God. <laughs> so that's the first 20 years of Vladimir's life. That is his rise to power. Right. He's brilliant. He's skillful. He's curious. He's charming. He's got a beautiful singing voice. He's been given everything he's ever desired by a loving father who he has loved back. Right. And in one fateful night, after a couple of murders here and there... <laughs> He is now the head of House Harkonnen at the young age of 20. What, what could, could possibly go, <laughs> go wrong for this young lad? Right. <laughs> well, he is now Baron, right? We can now say Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. And as the newly minted Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, he uh, decided to make some changes. He decided to uh, put his foot down and really, really take over with, with Augusto really take over with Augusto. Now, we immediately start to see some of the echoes of sort of the Baron we come to know in Dune at this moment, right? The ruthlessness, the mercilessness, these things come out right away. And part of this comes down to the fact that he saw his father's murder as a lesson, right? Normal guy, unremarkable, not explicitly cruel or, you know, merciless and planning and plotting, but like, you know, Good dad. Yeah. Loved his son. Gave his son a lot of stuff. Yeah. That's bad. That's weak. That invited being murdered by his son. <laughs> <laughs> so Baron Vladimir Harkonnen sees his father as an example of what not to be and decides to assert his strength in a different way. Right. And this began with the Praetorians, who he had been in, con in command of in Harko City. He immediately subjected his Praetorians to, quote, deep psychochemical interrogation and stress analysis, end quote. Wow. And if you think that sounds stressful, literally stressful, but also figuratively like, oh, God, I've got this deep psychochemical interrogation meeting with my boss today. Right. Oh. Yeah, it is a Monday, no doubt. <laughs> if you failed, he would just kill you. Oh, no ifs, ands or buts. Doesn't matter if you're great at other things. You're maybe you're the most efficient person at your job. Doesn't matter. You failed the interrogation and stress analysis. You're dead. Yikes. But that's not all. Next up, he then sought out anybody remotely sympathetic to his mother's house, House Cerebella, right? And he <laughs> publicly beheaded anybody remotely sympathetic to that house. Oh my God. Just a mass execution. <laughs> <laughs> he's 20. This is He's 20 years old. Right. And in short, to summarize, we get this quote from the Dune Encyclopedia. Quote, fear and power, power and fear. These became the Baron's most trusted tools. End quote. Wow. The shades of the Baron we know, truly. Yeah. No kidding. Fear and power. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. Well, now that he's asserted his control on the home front, 
fear and power, hashtag power and fear. <laughs> Vladimir then turns his attention to the rest of the Imperium and specifically to House Harkonnen's standing with the Emperor. Because just like his father, he too has ambitions right. for House Harkonnen's future, yeah. for the potential this house has. And step one of his ambitions is to get a Chome directorship. Yeah. yeah. Which is, to be clear, a lofty goal. <laughs> yeah. But it's only step one of an even loftier goal for our guy Vlad. What? Because once he gets the Chome directorship, yeah. his plan is to start building the case for a Harkonnen on the throne. Oh, my God. The goal. So this is how early, this is how young he had ambitions of taking the throne. Obviously, we see him pulling strings and trying to put himself on the throne in the Dune book as well. Right. And we can see that idea, that seed was planted decades ago here when he first took over as the head of House Harkonnen. Naturally, all of these lofty goals require some sort of kissing ass. Yeah. <laughs> and so he does his best to try and win the trust of the emperor at the time, Elrude the Ninth. Right. And basically the way he went about it was bribery. <laughs> Solid tactic, sure. Solid tactic. <laughs> Works on us too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bribe us. We'll talk about anything on this podcast. <laughs> We are like Elrude in that way. Yeah. <laughs> Elrude's podcast, man. If you became a patron on Elrude's podcast, you could request anything he'd talk about. Anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. The bigger the donation, the more he'd talk about it. It's incredible. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of donations, when the Baron signed up to be a patron for Elrude the Ninth, he cut a deal and was basically like, okay, 20% of my annual profits from the Zaradnium mines. Mm. I will donate to the Imperial Sardaukar. And Elrod the Ninth liked this deal. Yeah. The Dune Encyclopedia gives us some context for this deal. Right. Quote, Such a practice was not uncommon at the time, especially among new great houses. The Imperium had by then grown luxurious and its bureaucracy costly, often to the detriment of the Sardaukar. Military fife donations thus became an avenue to royal approval. End quote. Right. So once again, sort of talking big picture and how the Baron represents the larger politics of this universe, he's not alone. The bribes are flying left and right. Right. He is just one among many who are currying favor with the Emperor through bribery like this. Yeah. It's also kind of cool. The Sardaukar end up being right so instrumental in his plan to rid himself of House Atreides. Kind of fun. That one of his first, like, bribes put down is supporting financially the Sardaukar. Yeah. Yeah. That comes full circle. Poetic and nice. But our boy, Vlad, is not putting all of his slig eggs into a single crimscale basket. A couple <laughs> insane deep cut references there. Yeah. Well, that's the nerdiest thing you've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> which is saying something. Uh, he had other plans as well. Which is to say... He was bribing a lot of people. <laughs> Yay! Bribes everywhere. He was. He subscribed to so many patron pages, <laughs> Patreon pages. His Patreon account was like a thousand subscriptions. It was wild. <laughs> and although this portion of the Dune Encyclopedia was super confusing to me because I'm not, I'm just not very knowledgeable about financial stuff, and it was like a lot of specifics. Here's what I think it was saying. Okay. 
He actively formed what were called, quote, lucrative partnerships with lesser houses, end quote, as a means of gathering wealth and influence. So kind of bandying together with, uh, with other powers. And he apparently would consolidate investments from these smaller houses under new, you know, like Harkonnen labels with a promise of a percentage, all while bribing Chome directors to keep things moving, right? Like clearly playing things under the, uh, under the table a little bit. And when Chome directors were like, is that, should we stop him? He would, he would keep them going basically. Right. Sounds like he was basically creating Harkonnen subsidiary companies, like shell companies. Yeah. That would help out these smaller houses. And he would give them a cut of whatever these shell companies made. And then like bribing shown directors to be like, don't look at where the shell company is traced back to. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. I I think, man, you probably should have summarized this part of the encyclopedia. (laughs) You understand that way better than me. Uh, He also paid royalties and other types of kickbacks to House Carino directly. So, right, funding the Sardaukar with his mining profits, but also now directly paying royalties and bribes, clearly playing the field. Yeah. And in summary, and I thought this was also really key, quote, much of Vladimir's success can be attributed to an unerring instinct for the timing and placement of bribes, end quote. Hmm. Yeah. Like, our guy knows which pockets to line with a remarkable accuracy, is what this is saying. So here we see, unspoken, his brilliance, his strategic mastery of politics. Right. And just of the different mechanisms he had control over, he controlled them very, very well. But this instinct is really clearly an important part of what makes him so effective at his strategy. Yeah, definitely. And I would say this actually reveals to us that it's more than just financial savviness too, right? Right. Like, of course, the Baron would be like guy number two on the GameStop train when that takes <laughs> off. Like, yeah. he'd, he'd be in early, he'd cash out big. Right. Of course we know that. He'd be that guy. But I think bribery also implies that he was very good at reading people and situations. Yeah. Because you can't just like bribe someone from House of Trades or that's not going to work. Right. Yes. Good point. So I think this also implies to us that not only was he very financially savvy, but then he knew where to apply that pressure when it came to people and their desires, right? Like you bribe someone because they want something from you or through you. Right. And he knew how to manipulate that people in that way. That's such a good point because it also brings back that characteristic of him as a child. He was charming. He was a people person. His eyes missed nothing, right? He's the kind of guy, these houses minor, these small houses would not like turn their finances over to him if he couldn't like talk them into stuff. Like he clearly. Exactly. Yeah. Was charismatic and and, a people person in a way we really don't see in Dune because in Dune, we're only seeing him like behind closed doors, giving (laughs) villainous speeches and killing sook doctors. It's a side of him that has to exist, right? This isn't even necessarily conjecture or speculation, to be a political person, you have to be able to put on that mask. And clearly he's got it. Clearly he has that mask in his arsenal. For sure. For sure. Ah, I love the insight we get about the Baron from the encyclopedia like this. Right. Right. Now, here's the thing, Leo. Sure. 
you can't scheme for decades and have it not draw any attention. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No matter how savvy you may be. <laughs> I have found that in my own life. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so that's exactly what happened. All of this scheming, all of this bribery eventually drew the attention of the Landstrad. Right. And they sent a delegation of inquiry to look into all of these bribes and <laughs> all like of this manipulation and these shell companies. Obvious bribes, yeah. <laughs> right. And this is bold. Vladimir Harkonnen yeah. <laughs> responded to this delegation in an incredible way. Here's what he said. Quote, what benefits Harkonnen benefits the Landstrad. What benefits the Landstrad benefits Chom. And Chom benefits all. We must all work together. Economic fertility sustains us, and I wish merely to manure that ground. Those who accuse me of corruptive practices simply envy my success. Uh -huh. My only answer is, why are they so poor? End quote. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, shit. Incredible. Hey, did we get a response from Baron? Yeah, he uploaded a diss track to YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Truly a distract. Oh, I wish merely to manure that ground is so good, too. Oh, my God. And to oh. end on, why are they so poor? You my know? only question. Oh, incredible. Why are they so fucking poor? <laughs> <laughs> I, If I was on that Landsrad delegation of inquiry, I'd be like, all right, points points for bravado. That's dope. <laughs> I like yeah. this guy. <laughs> right. I'd I'd be looking for a new job at that point, frankly. Brush up the resume. Yeah. yeah. That that level of embarrassment you just don't bounce <laughs> back from. No. It is pointed out, as much as we are giving Baron all of the credit for this response. It is pointed out in the Dune Encyclopedia that the response had the characteristic tact of the Mentat, Chardon Cleese. Uh so let's talk about Chardon for a second. Now, remember, he's the reason Baron's alive. He's literally saved Vladimir's life when Araskin attacked him through fear. Take notes. <laughs> but also, the first 30 years of Vladimir's rule, right? So ages 20 to 50, really, went smoothly due to the excellent advice and guidance of Chardon. Right. He was operating as just an excellent, excellent, excellent mentat and advisor to Baron Harkonnen, who I especially, you know, he had his own instincts and his own brilliance, but you don't become an imperial power overnight. Baron literally did. I imagine Chardon was a big part of why that didn't collapse. Yeah, that's a great point. Alas, sweet, sweet Chardon, we knew him so well, died in the year 10,162 AG, leaving a mentat-shaped hole in Baron's heart. And ours. <laughs> I miss him already. <laughs> and the encyclopedia makes clear the Mentats Baron hired afterwards, you know, one after the other, were not as effective. And in a very Vladimir Harkonnen way, uh, he would kill them regularly when he felt that they were no longer useful to him. Right. Classic Baron. Brutal look. I mean, it does sort of leave the position open for Piter, but we'll talk about him later. Yeah, for sure. Stay tuned. Now, the year Chardon died is actually significant for another reason as well. Yeah. Because 
It's the year that House Harkonnen is officially granted the melange rights of Arrakis. Yes. <laughs> Ish. <laughs> uh, quick side note here. Sharp-eared listeners, you might remember the, like, I don't know, first two sentences of the movie or, like, the third page of Dune where they're like, House Harkonnen's been on Arrakis for 85 years or something like that. This is one of the things that the Dune Encyclopedia seems to get wrong or something. Right. Because we're saying now that in 10,162 AG, House Harkonnen gets melange rights of Arrakis. Yeah. Two possibilities regarding this discrepancy. The first one, which, God, considering how meticulous the Dune Encyclopedia is, seems really unlikely. But the first possibility is that this is just a mistake. Just straight up, the person who wrote the Baron's entry didn't know that House Harkonnen uh, had been on Arrakis for 80 years. Right. Human error, always a factor. Always a possibility, indeed. Or the second one is that the Dune Encyclopedia is quietly making a distinction here between the melange rites as a separate imperial permission from maybe Baron Harkonnen having some control over, like, Carthage City and having, like, a position on the planet already for, you know, whatever, 40 years before that or 50 years before that. So that's possible. At the end of the day, we don't really have to bend over backwards to justify this. Like, just ignore the years. <laughs> it doesn't super affect anything. It's all fake, guys. All, everything's made up. It's fiction. <laughs> it's all fiction. It hasn't happened yet. Could be prescience. We'll see. Right. Well, the key takeaway here is that after all of this careful bribery and his political machinations, the Baron has achieved control over the galaxy's golden goose, right? The spice melange, planet Arrakis. Yeah. Getting control of spice production is a huge win for House Harkonnen, and it is part of the reason why they become insanely rich. We actually get some details from the encyclopedia about the specifics of this melange rights that they are granted, this contract that they are given. And it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To summarize it quickly, basically, Chome gets a 20% cut between the directors. The Spacing Guild gets a 15% cut. The Benny Gesserit get a 5% cut. Good on them. Sneak that in. <laughs> Whoever is controlling the planet, and again, in this instance, House Harkonnen, mm -hmm. would get a 20 to 30% cut. And then the remaining profits, which is roughly 30 to 40%, depending on how the specifics are negotiated, would go to the emperor. Right. So that's where these spice profits are ending up in this contract. So if we do some quick math here, actually, mm. we actually know the exact salary amount that the Harkonnens were taking away from Arrakis. Because in the first book, Thufir is telling Duke Leto that House Harkonnen earned and took, quote, 10 billion solaris out of here every 330 standard days, end quote. Right, yeah. So, hold on, let me do some quick math here. 10 billion solaris, if that's just, let's say they negotiated well and that's 30% yeah. of the profits here in this contract, that means Spice Melange brings in over 30 billion solaris of profits, of pure profits. Yeah. For the Imperium. That's wild. Incredible. Yeah. 
what other single resource can you think of that brings in <laughs> tens of billions of pure profit? <laughs> That's uh, staggering. Saffron? Oregano? What's <laughs> probably that? oregano, right? Oregano? Like, oregano is probably a close second. <laughs> Super, yeah. Close to, yeah. <laughs> printer ink. So it's, it's melange. Printer ink. <laughs> oregano and then printer ink. <laughs> AOL online subscriptions are probably in the top 10 somewhere. <laughs> Those free CDs are <laughs> entrapment. <laughs> <laughs> 30 free minutes. Wow, that's great. And then you get hit with the bill. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Billions of Solaris is what we're talking about here, folks. House yeah. Harkonnen is rich because of this contract. Now, part of what allowed them to make that much money, because that, so you're right, like that's the size of the melange profits under House Harkonnen. But it's possible that that number would be significantly lower if someone else is in charge. Because You'll notice that that's just a raw, like you get a percentage of the maximum yield. There's no incentive for longevity. There's no incentive for working conditions. This contract incentivizes maximum production. So Vladimir was like, ah, I know just the kid. I know just the dude for this job. Count Glossu Raban, a.k.a. Beast Raban, a.k.a. Dave Bautista, He's the one to do this. Yeah. Now, Beast Raban was Vladimir's oldest nephew, and, well, at least according to the Dune Encyclopedia timeline, 30 years old, the time of his appointment. Uh, again, he probably just would have been given the responsibility, according to Frank's timeline, at some point, uh, as the appointed taskmaster of melange production. And from his earliest years, although Raban doesn't have the Harkonnen name, he had his kind of due share of, of characteristic Harkonnen ruthlessness and ambition. Right. I mean, I'm sure being the nephew of uh, Baron Harkonnen doesn't, like, improve your qualities <laughs> dramatically. <laughs> but it's noted he had his own qualities of ruthlessness and ambition. Right, right. And as we saw in the movie, but as we hear from Thufir and as we hear from other characters in Dune, Beast Raban was extremely effective in this role. And... He did earn a lot, a lot of money. Just so much Solaris. So many. He also earned, of course, as we know, the, quote, everlasting hatred of the natives, end quote. Zendaya hates Beast Raban. <laughs> Canonically. She's not Canonically. Yeah. Right. But you're absolutely correct that he's part of the reason why the profits are so high as well. Right. He's the one that Baron wants to uh, squeeze. Squeeze. You know, squeeze every inch of Arrakis you can and get as many Solaris out of it, out of spice production as possible. Yeah, true. So that covers the Baron's early life, his rise to power, and some of his early ambitions. Right. And some of his early wins as well, getting Arrakis a huge win. Totally, yeah. He is out here really currying the favor of his fellow minor houses and of the emperor himself. And he's winning. A lot of W's for our guy. Indeed. So this seems like a good point to take a break and reset. But don't go anywhere, folks, because when we come back, there are still some more things to talk about when it comes to the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. <laughs> yeah. And this time we're getting personal. Mm. We're talking family. Capital F. Hey. Family. So don't go anywhere. <laughs> we'll be right back. Indeed. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed your break. Yeah, let's talk about his uh, family 
a Baron Baron Vladimir's family, uh, aka fatherhood, aka well, heavens, the messiest part of today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> so the Dune Encyclopedia tells us that Vladimir Harkonnen actually has a kid, has a direct child, which raises a question, right? According to most sources, Vladimir's most prominent sexual pursuit was these young slave boys, right? This awful practice. So where does he get this kid? And why don't we meet them at the beginning of Dune? Right. Well, the answer is messy. <laughs> Hence our warning. This is probably the messiest <laughs> part of today's episode. Basically, he was seduced by a Bene Gesserit who later fled and delivered her baby far from his influence to kind of protect the, the child. Mm -hmm. You know, the Bene Gesserit, as we learned from the first part of Dune, have all of these breeding plans and the, they, they want genetic material from these different prominent members of houses, major and minor. So for whatever reason, right, this Bene Gesserit sister seduced him, got pregnant and then fled. And regarding who that Bene Gesserit sister was, there's some debate and controversy that we've talked about before and will likely talk about again. But what everyone agrees on is that she gave a name, and that name was Tanidia Neris. This is the name of the Bene Gesserit sister who seduced Baron Harkonnen. This is where the Dune Encyclopedia claims that Tanidia Neris is an alias that a younger Gaius Helen Moheim used. But, you know, that's sort of something that Frank never really loved from the Dune Encyclopedia, um, or from Brian's books, because that's also kind of what Brian settled on. Yeah. We've said it before, we'll say it again, Dune canonicity is messy, and there isn't really a correct canon answer. Frank never really settled who that Bene Gesserit sister was. We know her name is Tanidia. That's basically it. Right. And regardless of who Tanidia Neris actually is, it is worth taking a minute to dwell on her involvement with the Baron. Right. Why would the Bene Gesserit have this child with the Baron Harkonnen? Right. We're told that Tanidia Neris was presented to the Baron by Reverend Mother Croesia as a consort, quote, trained in the erotic arts, end quote. Mmm, dope. And he accepted the offer. He wasn't really concerned with what her motivations might be or why she would be presented to him in this way. Right. He was like, erotic arts, I'm in, baby. I was going to say, is that all wingmanning takes? Like if I, <laughs> we're out at a bar and you're like, this is Leo. He was trained in the erotic arts. Is that all it takes? <laughs> right. Good Lord. Didn't know that was the secret to banging anyone, apparently. <laughs> I guess the Baron doesn't have standards. <laughs> He's just like, yeah. say less. <laughs> That's, true. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Now- this also raises the question as to why he would accept a woman as a sexual partner, as we've established. He generally goes for young boys yeah. at this point. Right. And the Dune Encyclopedia has the following to say about this. Quote, Perhaps the romantic inheritance from Gunsing now reasserted itself. Perhaps he desired a change of taste, his pederasty awakening doubts about his masculinity or curiosity about sexual alternatives, end quote. Yeah, you know, it's a possibility, I guess. Yeah, those are some theories about why he would accept Tanidia into his household, basically. In addition to that, there are apparently accounts that he 
did have genuine love for her. Mm. Maybe love is too strong a word for the Baron, but definitely some sort of feelings. Sure. And it's suggested or theorized that he believed her to be his mother reincarnated. So maybe there are some like weird Oedipus feelings going on here. Yeah. And maybe that uh, murder of his mother affected him more than he actually thought and perhaps played a part here in his relationship with Tanidi and Eris. Right. Regardless, the two had an affair that was described as, quote, stormy and brief, end quote. <laughs> I have had relationships <laughs> like that. That is true. <laughs> right. Been there, done that. Yeah. And the end result was that Tanidia became pregnant. Eight months into that pregnancy, she was whisked away by the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood so that they could keep the child safe and secret from the Baron, as we've discussed. Right. We get one more section kind of exploring this relationship. And this actually comes from Reverend Mother Croatia's memoirs, which is kind of fun. I always like these parts of the Dune Encyclopedia. They're fun. Yeah. Now, this is a report from Tanidia Neris to Croatia, and it spills... All of the beans. Hello. <laughs> My God. Yes. I know. If you wanted steamy barren details, get ready. Prepare your body. <laughs> Apparently, she had to use, quote, subliminal arousal techniques, end oh. quote, because our guy couldn't exactly perform. Now, Caressia brings up, didn't want to be subtle about it. She brings up, you know, hey, he doesn't have that problem with young slave boys. And... We get this Benny Gesserit analysis of the Baron's character. Quote, His misogyny is deeply rooted but ambivalent. Inverted idealization of the anima reflects on his own childhood. Thus, the love for the young boys, himself in his own mind. The murder of Mortana was a release, but there is strong reason to believe that before he murdered her, they... Croatia. Now he channels it through repression and hatred, reverting to himself unconsciously, end quote. Wow. So basically, yeah, uh, his uh, <laughs> childhood didn't do him any favors. Strangling his mother to death didn't help him out that much. A lot happened that night, seems like. And uh, probably Vladimir should be in therapy. Yeah, <laughs> and, kind uh, of the takeaway. <laughs> talking to people about his feelings, because my God. He is ruling a planet and also a great house in the Imperium. Wow. Anyway, fascinating. Interesting look at Vladimir's softer side, um, sensual side, his stormy and brief experience with the Needy Anaris. Right. Wow. What a time in his life. Yeah. Clearly something he was working through related to his mother, and it resulted in him having this like secret child. Right. Now, moving on from that, it's also around this point in the timeline that Vladimir receives a new twisted mentat. Hey. And, and say with me, y'all. Piter DeVry University. Go, Go Seahawks. Seahawks. <laughs> <laughs> and their favorite. And they're, they're, oh, oh, let's recite together their famous anthem. Okay. Yeah. 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 Seahawks, flying through the sea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have much school spirit, is clear. No, I, I've never chanted before. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is where Piter enters 
the Baron's life. Indeed. In the Dune Encyclopedia, this is dated at 10,168 AG. And we've actually dedicated an entire episode to Peter DeVry University. So if you're interested in learning all about him, go check that out. But in brief, Peter, as we know, is a highly effective twisted mentat who also developed a number of poisons and schemes. He's got a lot of patents in the Harkonnen patent office for <laughs> deadly poisons, I'm sure. Yeah. In addition to the poisons, it's also during this period that Peter, quote, machinated the destruction of a number of minor houses and the weakening of many more, end quote. Hmm. So my guy is immediately being put to work by the Baron. As soon as he starts working for the Baron, we're starting to take out some rivals, starting to crush some of these pesky minor houses. Wild stuff. Reading between the lines for a second, considering Baron Harkonnen rose to power through alliance with a number of houses minor, maybe this was like cleanup. Yeah. Right? Like maybe this is the ones he couldn't manipulate. Well, let's take care of them through other means. And I need the discretion Ooh. and brilliance of someone like Piter. Yeah. Interesting. I also couldn't help but notice that Piter joins him pretty late in the game. Whether we're using the Dune Encyclopedia's timeline or the Dune timeline from Frank, Baron had influence and had his house major and was Baron and was yielding these crazy profits on Arrakis before Piter joined Team House Harkonnen, right? Like... I often give a lot of credit of Baron's incredible plan to wipe out House Atreides to Piter. I'm like, wow, Piter is such a good mintad. He came up with this great plan. But it's worth acknowledging how far Baron's made it with Chardon Cleese, of course, but also without Piter thus far. Yeah. He can sometimes in the book read as like dependent on the information Piter gives him, but Piter is just part of the team that joined a little later. You know, right. Baron's really got his own his own platform he's built. That's a great point. We don't want to give Piter too much credit for the Baron's rise. The Baron had risen quite a bit on his own. Right. Before Piter joins the roster. That's so true. He had risen like a Seahawk. Go, <laughs> Go Seahawks. Seahawks. Flapping through the sea. Flapping through the sea. <laughs> through the sea? <laughs> through? I don't know. Above? About th what even is a Seahawk? Someone send me a picture of a Seahawk. Come to our podcast at <laughs> Back to Piter. We talked about in Piter's episode how our guy simply doesn't miss. Yeah. He might have joined the team late, but boy, is he effective. And boy, does he catapult this team to greater heights. Canonically, we acknowledged in that episode that he only ever really made one mistake on the record. And that was in guessing the gender of Jessica's child. He thought it would be a daughter as she was ordered by the Bene Gesserit. Right. And of course, as we know, it turned out to be Paul. Right. I would say truly a worthy successor to Chardon Cleese. Yeah. Piter came in and had some big shoes to fill. Chardon clearly was very effective as Baron's right-hand mentat. And the Baron clearly went through many mentat failures and probably murdered quite a few of them before he landed on someone who could fill those shoes. Right. So shouts to Piter for coming in and really taking on this burden of carrying on Chardon Cleese's legacy within House Harkonnen. Indeed. Big shoes to fill. This is where Fade Rautha Harkonnen enters the scene. And this is the year 10,174 AG. If you are a movie watcher and you haven't read the book yet, you haven't met Fade Rautha <laughs> 
Uh, there's casting announcements about him. Handsome, handsome guy playing him. But he is the nephew and, and this isn't a spoiler or anything, he's the nephew and heir apparent to House Harkonnen, basically. He's the nephew to Baron Harkonnen and the heir apparent. He was born in 10,174 AG to Abelard Raban, and this led me to basically looking into Fade's entry, because one of the questions I wanted to answer for all of us today is, Baron Harkonnen's got Beast Raban, and he's got Fade Rautha. Where did he get his nephews? Right. Like, where did they come from, and why are they a part of his squad? <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> I know that he doesn't have a kid of his own, you know, present to be his heir, but fucking, who's going to be like, yeah, take my nephews, guy who has sex with children? Like, right. fucking no. No one's going to trust him. Where did they come from? And another side side note, I didn't even notice this, but Beast Raban and Fade are brothers. And according to this, they have a, an age difference of 42 years. Holy shit. <laughs> That's wild. Fade Rautha and and Beast Raban are brothers, but the age difference is insane. Yeah. I guess with like life extension, the life, you know, the geriatric qualities of the melange. Yeah. These sorts of things would, would happen, right? Like a 15-year, 16-year gap in siblings today in the year 10,000 might be 40, 50 years. Anyway, apparently a Bene Gesserit approached Vladimir and was like, hey, you know your nephews? And Vladimir's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. She's like, well, quote, one of them would display the manipulative military genius of the Baron's historical idol, Emperor Avalard the 17th, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> I had to read that Roman numeral for a second. Oh, no, not the 14th. He was my favorite Avalard. <laughs> There's so many Avalards to choose from. You chose 17? <laughs> cringe. That's cringe, bro. <laughs> yeah, Emperor Avalard the 17th. And what does that mean? Doesn't fucking matter. The point is, Baron Harkonnen's idol, this, like, historical genius, you mean to tell me one of these two boys, who are, like, somewhat related to me, are going to be a brilliant tactician and a brilliant person, a brilliant genius? Hell yeah. Bring him into my house. So, that was all it took. Baron Harkonnen took Fade Rautha and Glosso Raban into his house on that Benny Gesserit's prediction and began basically grooming them to suit his needs, right? We know that Beast Raban is not the brightest being in the potato sack or whatever. He's not the smartest. So I imagine Baron Harkonnen looked at Fade and went, yeah, you're clearly the smart one. Uh, you're clearly going to be the brilliant one of the two. So he begins grooming Fade to be his heir. And his uh, right. his successor to House Harkonnen. Right. And I want to point out the parallel that some of our listeners might have noticed here, too. This sort of continues the tradition of not the elder son, but the second son or the younger son. Right. Being the one who rises to power or is being raised to rise to power. Kind of an interesting parallel here between the Baron and his brother and now Beast Raban and his brother. Right. It's true. Well, that is the current makeup of Baron Harkonnen's party, I guess, squad. if we're talking like his squad, yeah. <laughs> his his WoW rating party, yeah. you know, yeah. 
it's it's Piter, it's Fade Ratha, and it's Beast Raban. These are the folks within his inner circle that he is utilizing toward all of his schemes. Right, right. And these are the people that help him kick off the efforts that we see in Dune, in the book itself. These are the characters we are introduced to in the story. By this point in the timeline, this young, handsome, charming Duke Leto has risen to popularity within the Landstrad. Right. Obviously, a mortal enemy of the Baron, and thus the Baron approaches Shaddam IV along with Piter, and they come up with this devious plan to basically remove House Atreides to get rid of Leto, who is becoming not only a political threat, but as we've discussed on the podcast before, a military threat. Right. He's got Gurney, he's got Duncan training his men to rival the Sardaukar, and now Shaddam IV himself is threatened as well. So he agrees to this plan with the Baron. Ultimately, as we know and as we've discussed, the Baron's true plan is to get a Harkonnen onto the throne. Right. That is the end game that they are aiming for and the end game that he's been aiming for for decades. Right. The plan that they present to Shaddam IV actually is, in short, quote, bold, devious, and risky, but the ultimate rewards were incalculable, end quote. Yeah, wow. It's a plan that gives everyone what they want. Mm. And it's hard to say no to. Yeah. And so this is the plan and the plot that we see kick off in the first half of the Dune book, of course. We all know how that unfolds and how House Atreides has given Arrakis as sort of a trap and then they're attacked. We know that story, but here's the origin point of it. That once the Baron has gathered up his World of Warcraft raiding party, Piter comes up with this <laughs> yeah. plan, they present it to the Emperor, and thus kicks off the story of Dune. Indeed. Now, in the movie, we see a couple of these scenes, a couple of his scenes, right? We get the <laughs> floating amongst his ranks, his taunting of Duke Leto with the tooth. <laughs> and we see his subsequent recovery or his path to recovery. And while we, we're not going to be talking about anything past the first half of Dune and this movie, like the, the duration of Denis Villeneuve's adaptation, I did want to talk about Baron surviving the tooth for a second. Uh, it's actually really a, a fascinating coincidence <laughs> that he survives the tooth for a, a couple of reasons. Now, the first reason he survives is just that he's a cautious, careful man, right? He activates his shield, right? keeps his shield on, even though Duke Leto is not looking like a threat. Yeah. He's like, I don't know what's happening. He activates his shield, right? Having the shield on is a big part. They say in the book explicitly that it slowed the uh, molecular exchange of the oxygen, you know, on either side of the shield is part of what kept the gas away from him for an extra heartbeat. But the other side of this is his suspensors. Now, as a young man, we talked about how Baron was like winning fencing tournaments and he was a stockier dude, but not the like hulking presence that we see, right? When we meet him, he literally cannot support his own weight. And this is just canonically true about Baron Harkonnen. He uses those suspensors, the crackling red glowing things on his back to, to allow him to move around. And in the book... We're told 
that he is uh, just shy of about 400 pounds in the year 10,191. The reason for this, according to the Dune Encyclopedia, and implied by things Frank wrote in the first book, is that after his father's death and the subsequent evening that he had becoming Baron. <laughs> what an understatement. What, is, what an understatement. The evening he had. The what? evening he had. I also have evenings. What's the difference between his Ooh, and mine? I had an evening. What a doozy <laughs> of an evening he had. He swapped out his coping mechanisms. He used to exercise and you know do lots of things for comfort when he was feeling down right after his father's death and his rise to baron he uh began eating a lot and indulging in all of those kind of sense pleasures including his pederasty his uh sexual preference for young boys and whether that was just him leaning hard into some perceived evil caricature that he was creating for himself, right? Duke Leto says they expect an heir of bravura, so you cultivate an heir of bravura. Maybe he was becoming this monster who would rule with fear and power intentionally. It's possible. That's speculation, but it's, you know, it's kind of in the text, right? Nevertheless, we do see the results of this just shy of 400 pounds, suspended by these Holtzman Field suspensors that allow him to float and glide. The suspensors are a huge reason why he didn't share Piter's fate and the other guards who died in that room. Yeah. In the movie, he literally floats up and away, which is, you know, like a literal thing. In the book, I think he kind of darts out of the room, uh, but again, is only able to because he's got these suspensors and other strong Harkonnen guards were not able to get away fast enough. So clearly, in kind of a weird, ironic twist, his love of these sense pleasures that has led him to be a big, beautiful, thick boy uh, led to him 100% surviving the poison tooth plan of Dr. Yui. Really interesting. Yeah. And adds a new depth to that scene that I hadn't considered before. Yeah, it definitely does. And that's the Baron, folks. That's the Baron. At least for today. There's much more Baron. <laughs> yeah. But within the confines of today's spoiler-free discussion, that's the Baron. That's his history. That's his come up, his life as a young prodigy who's scarred by his murderous, eventful <laughs> nights, as you put it. <laughs> yeah. It's his evening. His, like, nice right. little, yeah, had an evening. Yeah. Yeah. And then following that evening, of course, his rise to power, his ruthlessness, an incredible story. I mean, it, it really does put into context a lot of the Baron's choices in the book itself. Yeah. And also, like, expands on his character in ways that are so interesting and so fascinating. He's the big bad of Dune, but in many ways, he is also representative, as we've said, of the politics of Dune. You have to be a big bad or you won't survive in this universe. And that contrast makes the Atreides stand out much more as well, that they are sort of against that status quo of the universe. Yeah. So to wrap up, as we like to do, let's end on some questions. Sure. First up, Leo, I'm curious, from today's discussion, what's one little factoid about Vladimir that really jumps out at you? <laughs> like a Seahawk from the shadows. Uh, <laughs> through the sea. Through the sea. <laughs> uh, you know, 
I love that he sings. I love that he has a great singing voice. And I love this for a couple of reasons. I mean, in the book, we get reference to his rumbling basso voice, right? His beautiful, big, powerful voice. So I, I do like that it is sort of supported by Frank's writings, that it's this Dune Encyclopedia detail supported by Frank's writings. But, you know, Frank's universe has always been, to me, very compelling because these characters have complex motivations and nuanced plans within plans, within plans, etc. And giving Vladimir redeeming qualities, you know, like distances him a little bit from this caricature that is kind of easy to make of him sometimes, you know, giving him all of these awful qualities, you know, and he smells bad and he's mean. It's like, okay, okay, we get it. He's the bad guy. Right. Giving him qualities like he's really smart. He's a people person. He's charming if, if he wants to be. He's got a beautiful singing voice, you know, very good at chess, very good at chiops. <laughs> I feel like that rounds him out as a character in a way that I really appreciate. You know, I also <laughs> couldn't help but think, could we get like a Dune musical treatment? Oh my God. <laughs> could we get like a music? Can you imagine like Scar's Be Prepared from Lion King, but performed by <laughs> Baron <laughs> singing to the like, whatever the fuck his name was, Nefud, 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 right? The, uh, start, the, the guard. Yeah. The, the guard. Cap- yeah. Captain of the guard. Yeah. <laughs> be prepared. <laughs> It'd be so good. Right, but anyway. it's actually a banger, you know? You're, but it's actually a it's, banger. It's when you play at the gym when you're trying to get those extra crunches in. <sighs> totally. You hear it and you're like, I will float like you're doing pull-ups. You're like, I will float like the Baron, like a Seahawk. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, that's where my mind goes. Beautiful singing voice. I love um, it. I love it. What about you? Anything jump out at you? Uh, Well, the... Matricide jumps out at me quite a bit. <laughs> the evening he had, yeah. Because it's something we don't know about, right? From the story, his mother never comes up or is mentioned in the primary Dune books. Right. It's the encyclopedia that expands on his character in this way and gives him that backstory where he literally had to murder his mother on his path to power. Right. On his path to becoming Baron. It's fascinating to me. Like you said, it sort of rounds out his character This one is obviously a bit more nefarious, (laughs) and I think what it does for me is that it makes it clear that the Baron has things in his past that affect him to this day. Right. Like, you'd initially read this factoid about his mother and be like, oh, that's weird. She never came up. It must not have mattered to him. Sure, yeah. But then you get to the factoid about Tanidia Neris and why he had this, like, short, awful relationship with her that ended (laughs) in a secret child. Right. A lot of the impetus for that came from his unresolved feelings about matricide, about having to strangle his mother. Right. And it did end up greatly affecting his life and being a part of it, even if we don't see it in the Dune story itself. And so that sort of like little bit of history and how it affects him and then how we see the ripples of it in the Dune stories is always so fascinating to me. And it's always the parts of these discussions that I walk away with just mulling over for days and what I appreciate the most about the encyclopedia and about our conversations that you and I have. Yeah. We can now walk away thinking, wow, did the Baron do that because of his feelings about his mom? Or like, wow, 
that's something he learned from his dad or right, 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 right. like th those are the facts that always stick with me so much is how we see those small ripples and how they continue to affect these characters lives. Yeah. I mean, God, you, you know, another angle of this is formative moment in Baron's life. His brother murdered his father. Yeah. And then his house mentat murdered his brother. Right. <laughs> and then he murdered his mother. Right. Look, I don't care how good your singing voice is. You don't just walk <laughs> away from that. No, you don't. <laughs> and it's also, if if we're talking about, okay, the lesson he learned from his father being murdered by his brother is don't be weak like my father. Don't have these like redeeming sensitivities. Don't allow people to get uh, you know close to you in that way. Sure. Other side of it, he was the biggest threat to his mother, whether or not she knew that going into that evening. And he was vulnerable to his brother. Think about what that does to you psychologically when you're 20 to learn never to trust anybody. The closest people to you that you've known the, for as long as you've lived are potentially the ones who are going to put a needle in your neck yeah. or strangle you to death. Right. And again, does that redeem him? Does that make him suddenly a good person? That <laughs> you know, No, of course not. <laughs> but it explains his ruthlessness and the fact that he doesn't truly trust anybody. And I imagine he has contingency plans for like Beast Rabon turning on him. I imagine he's prepared for these things to happen. And that's just got to be exhausting and taxing emotionally. And it's got to put you in basically a, a state of just constant paranoia for your whole fucking life. It's wild. Yeah. So you're right. I think it, it gives some depth and some substance to a character who we're so often invited to just look at him like a big, scary cardboard cutout. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, to end on a bit of a lighter note, quick sure. question. Yeah. We've been joking a lot about his singing voice. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Let's imagine it's karaoke night. <laughs> what song is the Baron selecting on the karaoke machine? What song does he know all the words to? <laughs> I mean, I, Be Prepared is like the, the, the one I joked about earlier. Uh, <laughs> right. Or like Go the Distance, but it's like menacing. <laughs> it's like threat, <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> I can go the distance. Uh, oh, maybe like My Way by Frank Sinatra, which is like oh, that whole yeah. I did it my way, that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, there's a few that come to mind. <laughs> Baby yeah. shark. Uh, right. What about you? For me, this this was a pretty clear answer. It came to me <laughs> sure. instantly in a flash flash of inspiration. Yeah. That let the bodies hit the floor song. I think it's just <laughs> called bodies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a let quick Google tells me it's by drowning pool. Let the bodies. I dude. I yeah. used to play. I used to play Super Mario Sunshine listening to Drowning Pool. It was very strange. Okay. <laughs> shit. We gotta unpack that off mic. I think. <laughs> what the fuck. <laughs> Listen, I had an evening. I had a, an evening <laughs> once. <laughs> and I'm the head of House Wiggins. Uh, no, oh, my God. Are you, are you trying to tell me about your secret child by Tanidia Neris? <laughs> I had a stormy and brief encounter once many years ago. <laughs> but didn't we all, asking for a friend, did not we all have stormy? Did not we all. <laughs> you know what? I'm glad this podcast isn't stormy and brief. I'm glad that this is, you know, stormy good. and forever. It's a storm stormy that never ends. Storm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ow, but yeah, true. It's a <laughs> never-ending Coriolis storm, you know. <laughs> it's the great, 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 great grandmother of the storm. <laughs> she never stops. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Wadeep and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. That's huge. That is a big win for her. Having control of Spice production is a huge win for her. Hearse? Why the fuck can I say house? <laughs> I'm thinking too fast and getting to Harkonnen before I say house. And it just. Hearse Harkonnen. <laughs> God damn it.